0: This is the MDT Podcast.
1: A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about aging, MDT.
2: The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people.
1: Welcome to the MDT podcast. I am Ian Wilkinson. I'm a consultant geriatrician down from Surrey.
2: And I'm Joe Preston and I am a consultant
0: geriatrician in London. I'm Sophie Norman and I'm the education fellow working with the MDT team this year.
1: And this week we are thinking about suicide and older people. And so to help us with that, we have a special guest who is Kate.
3: Hi, I'm Kate Bailey. I am a high trainee in general adult and older adult psychiatry, currently working uh, in mental health care for older people, uh, community team in Tower Hamlets and on a dementia ward.
1: Amazing. And for those of you that have listened to the podcast for a while, you will have heard Kate's dulcet tones before and you know that we're therefore in for a treat. And this is going to be really informative and thought provoking and a really, a really good episode. So coming up today, we are going to think about uh, an understanding of the risk factors for suicidal thoughts and suicidal behaviour in older adults, think about how COVID represents an exacerbation of the intersection between a number of these risk factors, and identify some opportunities for universal and selective prevention for those people like us who are lucky enough to work with older people. Hopefully, by the end of this, you'll feel a little bit more confident about asking people about the spectrum of suicidal thoughts. And Uh, have a little bit more confidence about what to do when you when you ask those questions and where to refer people and how to make sure that people are safe.
2: But before we get started social media who's got something for us this week?
1: I have something so I wanted to talk about a tweet that I saw from Michelle Laurent who is a geriatrician who's interested in osteoporosis, uh, bone diseases, sarcopenia, and such like from Belgium. And he tweeted about a really nice article that is called Increased Mortality in Hip Fracture Patients Living Alone, a NORPOS study. And it's published in the Journal of Bone and Mineral Research in January of this year. What it was, was a study looking at survival rates following hip fractures and what may impact upon that. They're conscious that the fact the the role of social support hasn't really been studied and that people's living situations might be an indicator of what their social support is and that may predict their mortality. So they looked at a cohort of patients, 12,000 men and 22,000 women aged between 50 and 79 from a Norwegian national population and housing census conducted between 2002 and 2013. They followed them for 12, nearly 13 years. They estimated relative survival of hip fractures and compared that with the non-fractured background population living in the same situation, so whether or not people live alone or with a partner. What they found was that you have a higher mortality after a hip fracture uh, in both men and women if you live alone versus if you live with a partner. And the strongest association was actually in young men, so men under the age of 60. Compared with the general population, uh, the relative survival uh, of eight years after hip fracture was 43% in men and 60% in women living alone. Whereas the relative survival, if you're living with a partner, was relative chance of getting that eight years was 50% versus 67%. So, so, you know, not a huge difference, but a, a significant difference. So their conclusion was that hip fracture patients who live alone had a higher mortality than those living with a partner and lower survival relative to the general population which i think is interesting because i think we always focus on the things that we feel intuitively we can modify easily as doctors and and nurses and, and teams looking after people after fractures so we look at you know their bone health and their falls risk and we look at their analgesia perioperatively and their physiotherapy but maybe we should be focusing a little bit more about what we can do sort of outside of that looking at the social social situation a little bit more
3: i think that leads quite nicely into the episode for today as well because thinking about kind of loneliness and and also i guess major changes in physical functioning as well and also i suppose just the the trauma that some people suffer after their hip fractures if you're alone and you are kind of having a really long lie and you're there and you're not sure if anyone's ever going to come, it's it's potentially much more traumatic than someone who's got someone there and calls the ambulance straight away. So there's a lot to think about.
1: Yeah, definitely feeds into the fear of future falls. And, and yeah, it's like, we've got an episode on loneliness recorded not that long ago. So uh, it might be a good point to just point you in that direction. So go and have a listen to that if you've not listened to it. That will feed in nicely to some of the stuff we're going to talk about today.
3: Just to kind of acknowledge that we are going to be talking about suicide and self-harm today. And although suicide is actually statistically a very, very rare event, it's an event that touches a lot of people's lives in different ways and as health professionals we may have had patients who've died by suicide um, or personally we might have friends or family. So just to acknowledge that, that we are talking about something quite difficult but that the hope is through having conversations about this and, and talking much more openly we might be able to be helpful.
2: So today we're going to start by using a case to kind of frame our, our discussion today. So the case is one of someone called Mr. Jones. He's 83 years old and he's a retired mechanic who's been admitted um, and has fractured his neck of femur. So he fell over when he was drunk and he was found on the floor. He'd had quite a long lie. He was found by his neighbour who happened to knock on his door when he was dropping around some food. He was found on admission to have a number of spinal crush fractures that hadn't previously been diagnosed. He's been living alone since his wife died about four years earlier. And the nursing staff has noticed that he seems quite withdrawn on the ward and um, he isn't making much of an effort with his physiotherapy sessions when they come to visit him. He's due to be discharged with an enablement package of care but mentions the F1 while they're taking bloods that he really just feels like he's had enough. So at this point, the FY1
0: um, who's heard this might be thinking several different things. They may be thinking how to start a conversation about the concerns that Mr Jones has raised and about what Mr Jones has explained in terms of how he's feeling and they may also be thinking how and when to ask for a review by um, liaison psychiatry or community mental health teams. If we start with some definitions and the first being the definition for suicide, um, so that is intentionally causing one's own death, and then also to define self-harm. And the term self-harm is used in this quality standard. And we're getting this these definitions, this information from the NICE guideline quality standard QS34, which was published uh, June 2013. And it defines self-harm as referring to any act of self-poisoning or self-injury carried out by a person irrespective of their motivation.
3: So I think epidemiology of suicide is quite complicated and sort of hard to apply, I think. But Some important things that we've learned from the National Confidential Inquiry into Suicide, which is published uh, routinely, and the most recent one covers the 2007 to 2017 years, tell us that particularly for older adults, these patients are, are likely to have depression and a high percentage will have been ill for less than a year, so a new, newer onset depression. Only 20% were under the care of mental health services, which is lower than any other age group. So these are not necessarily people that we're seeing as, as older adult psychiatrists. So a systematic review which looked at people who had completed suicide, so older adults who died by suicide, around 45% had consulted their GP in the month before they died, whilst only about 136 had had contact with mental health services. Obviously, it's difficult to necessarily interpret that too much. It doesn't necessarily mean that those people were consulting their GP about suicidal thoughts. They might have been kind of seeking help for something else. Um, But it does tell us that the contacts are probably not with mental health services often before people die.
2: It should be noted that the spectrum of suicidal ideation and behavior in older adults is very likely to be under And that can be because they present in different ways. So things like self-starvation and self-dehydration can be quite common. So in terms of recording the deaths of suicides, it might be harder to identify whether a verdict of suicide can be made when there's multimorbidity, frailty and polypharmacy are common in this group and they would have a high level of mortality and morbidity anyway.
0: And then thinking about self-harm, uh, a UK study looking at self-harm in those over 60 found rates of 65 per 100,000 people, which is much lower than those in age group 18 to 59, where it's about 380 per 100,000 people. But um, the point to make here, which is really important, is that um, we must understand the suicide risk after an instance of self-harm in an older person is 67 times higher than someone who has not harmed themselves and to put this in context, the risk of suicide after self harm in someone aged 20 to 59 is three times the risk compared to the general population. So there's that huge
2: discrepancy there. That's really worth knowing about, isn't it? So you don't think about them in the same way when you see people to take that take that more seriously.
3: Oh, I mean, we never want to kind of dismiss self harm in any age group, and we want to kind of understand yeah, what's the the rash like what's happening for people. But I think with older adults. It's so important to to take it very seriously, even if the self-harm itself seems sort of very minor, like a small overdose or a very small cut. Um, it's so much more important to kind of ask about what was going on for that person and not just see it as self-harm and, and th- ask about
1: suicide. And that is backed up really by a, a recent systematic review in The Lancet from 2018 that looked at self-harm in older adults and found that 30% of people had seen their GP before so sort of trying to get help. And around 60% had had contact with primary care in some form in the month before the episode of self-harm. And only 40% of people had previously received treatment for mental health services, which I think backs up what you were saying, Kate, about it being a relatively acute illness in older people. And a study of primary care data found that after the incidence of self-harm, only 12% of older adults were referred on to mental health services. So given what we now know, that's a a significant deficit in our services there those that were uh, referred on 60% were prescribed an antidepressant and 12% were prescribed a tricyclic antidepressant
3: which i think is is worth noting just in terms of kind of risk reduction and and kind of prevention of further harm obviously tricyclics very very lethal in overdose so something that we really worry about um, in people who are feeling suicidal.
0: Then just talking now about risk factors for suicide in older adults and digging into that a bit more in a bit more depth. So starting off, uh, mental disorders are a risk factor. And this is especially depression, which uh, was often undertreated, and depression with psychotic features. um, So things like delusions of guilt, poverty, persecution, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and extreme fear and disorganised behaviour in delirium can also occasionally result in very severe self harm.
3: Agitated depression, which is a common presentation of depression in older adults, is is a really horrible sort of state to be in, it. and that kind of agitation can sometimes lead to to self harm, especially when it's coupled with insomnia and, and um, that kind of yeah high levels of distress.
0: Following on, isolation is a risk factor. So we we mentioned that at the beginning when talking about that social media, the study from social media that Ian mentioned. Safeguarding and abuse, substance misuse, and this is frequently under-recognised as a risk factor for suicide in older adults. Insomnia, poverty, and we did an episode back in series nine on poverty. A recent bereavement um, is a risk factor with that being highest in those who've lost a partner in the last month. Being in a caring role, having a physical impairment, particularly those which cause functional impairment, pain or a loss of autonomy. Yeah,
3: there are, and there are some particular disorders that have very high rates of suicide and um, things like MS and Huntington's because there's an expectation and an understanding that there will be kind of further decline and sometimes people may feel that they want to do something while they still have the ability to do so but there's also complex interplay with depression and, and cognitive impairment in those disorders as well.
0: Leading on from that a uh, desire for hastened death can occur in palliative populations so that's another risk factor to be aware of um, and figures vary but most studies are found somewhere between five to twenty percent of people in this situation, have this desire.
1: So that's a relatively low number. Do you think Kate is is therefore and a lot of the things we've talked about so far as risk factors can be linked in some way to a mood disorder. So do you think is suicide in older people predominantly an acute depressive state and sort of a, you know a manifestation of that rather than something that's more more chronic and you know sort of. More longer term?
3: I think I would say that I'd, I still don't understand it well at all myself and it's a very very complex phenomenon but I think for many people it can be quite an abrupt state that comes on very quickly which which is one of the reasons it's hard to predict. I think when we're talking about people in palliative care or who have life-limiting illnesses and they have a wish for and death it, it's usually sort of it seems to be a phenomenon where there's this kind of sense of total suffering and a loss of control and there's a wish for things to just come to an end. And that very good palliative care can often alleviate that feeling. But there will be a population within that group who still have depression that needs to be treated and who may have more active suicidal ideation. So it's 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 complex.
1: Yeah, so the suicide is the unfortunately the, the final common pathway for what could be a number of different conditions absolutely yeah
0: yeah, yeah. and the question of dignitas is a whole session in itself it's just important to note and to recognize that like we said in terms of patients with life limiting illnesses and palliative conditions sometimes people can be suffering in a variety of ways which can lead to a death wish and it's not
2: always as simple as being tired of life so another risk factor is shame so it's quite an important factor in affecting how older adults might access help after they've Um, experience self-harm that's particularly relevant when considering what people might do when they feel suicidal like what sort of internal judgments they make of themselves how might that specifically relate to the older population who may still remember when suicide was a crime Like, what thoughts that might that bring up for people psych ache so it's a
3: concept that's described by Schneidman, which is this kind of, it, I think it does relate to this sort of total suffering concept um, because it's a kind of mental and physical total experience of, of um, that, that is intolerable. Basically, that's the point of it. And that's why people may feel driven to act because whatever they're feeling, um, the combination of, of shame, guilt, humiliation, loneliness, all of these things is, is intolerable. And I think shame's a really important thing to think about as well when it comes to kind of needing help for uh, very personal care or not being able to do something for yourself anymore or having kind of incontinence and all that kind of things that can come with ageing, that that shame can be a really powerful emotion in those situations.
2: So adverse childhood experiences can influence things and they can be related to physical ill health and suicide risk across the lifespans. It's worth remembering that. And also importantly, individual experiences and perceptions can be associated with self-harm and suicidal intentions. And that was found in some qualitative studies that included uh, impaired decision-making and coping, loss of control and wanting to regain control, um, threats to identity and continuity, disconnectedness, invisibility, alienation and meaninglessness.
1: So I think there's 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 lots there, isn't there? Potential risk factors and things for us all to, to think about. I think it can be you know, there's a danger, it can be overwhelming, but I think the, the key thing is that it seems like self-harm is a real big alarm bell, and suicide amongst older people still remains relatively rare, but under-researched, I think. it's 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 complicated, isn't it? Inevitably, there are links to dementia, and the coexisting situation of dementia and depression, I'm sure, is, is particularly important as ever, whenever you get two diagnoses that come together, it's it's not so good.
3: Yeah, I think it's really complicated and, and it has been an area for, for study and interest, particularly because of the kind of potential f- with early diagnosis of dementia? Will that lead to people sort of deciding to end their lives earlier because of the fear of what what may await them? The relationship though between kind of the cognitive deficits associated with dementia and suicide is again really complicated. There is the potential that there's a kind of cognitive inflexibility and impulsivity and, and a diminished problem-solving ability that can come with, with the um, onset of cognitive impairment. But And the risk can potentially be increased even in the absence of depression. It's not, the dementia diagnosis itself does not appear to increase risk. But again, there are ongoing studies um, in in this area. Importantly, though, to know is that having some cognitive impairment is not kind of a complete barrier to having psychological therapy. There are lots of kind of adaptations for that. So there are things that can be done for suicidal ideation, even in adults who've got depression and cognitive impairment.
0: Okay. So if we were going to jump back into the case of Mr. Jones um, to apply the stuff that we've just talked about um, to him and review his risk factors, we need to ask more about how he's feeling, his day-to-day life, his family and support network and um, significant life events as well as some other things.
2: So a bit more history then. So he describes that he's feeling really frustrated and tired. He's lost interest in listening to the radio and lost interest in eating. He's lost some weight, but he's not sure how much. He's not been sleeping very well for some months and... Gradually drinking more over the preceding months, partly to manage the insomnia and partly to manage his anxiety about catching COVID and dying alone. He's felt lost since the death of his wife. And although he's been regularly attending Men's Shed and helping out in the local garden centre, because that's all been shut down because of COVID, he's not been able to do those things recently. He's never really been someone to talk on the phone and so he's not really had contact or spoken to many of his friends from the garden centre since lockdown. His daughter doesn't live nearby. She lives in Birmingham. She has two children and the family has sent him an iPad, but he can't quite figure out how to use it.
3: There are many, many different theories of suicide, but one that often gets applied and thought about with older adults is the interpersonal theory, because it describes these two dynamic psychological states where there's an experience of thwarted belonging and perceived burdensomeness, which is probably states that you may have experienced when working with older adults. Um, People often talk about feeling like a burden and that they don't kind of fit anymore. And these two constructs are thought to kind of lead to this development of what's described as passive suicidal thoughts, where there's just a sense of life not being worth living, maybe wishing that they were dead, but then some sort of painful and provocative experience can lead to this acquired capability which it somehow reduces the fear of death and elevates a pain tolerance such to the point that someone might actually take action to to harm themselves. There's lots of other psychodynamic theories about shame and rage The idea of being able to split off um, the body and the bad self so that if the body is damaged that you might be wanting to kill off the body, but there's an idea that the mind will still go on in some form. And there's some also really interesting work from Rachel Gibbons, who's a psychotherapist and and psychiatrist, on the idea that there might be an earlier failure to mourn a loss that then gets reactivated by some relatively small thing and, and that that can lead to this kind of state
1: We've got our gentleman, we've got a bit more history about him and we're bearing in mind our risk factors and we're bearing in mind the interpersonal theories that you've just talked about. So we're now thinking about him and him having depression and how we explore that a little bit more or try to to open up that, that discussion, how we get into that discussion a little bit more. And the NICE guidelines suggest two screening questions that we can use for people who are inpatients in hospital who don't have cognitive impairment? And so those are during the past month, have you often been bothered by feeling down, depressed, or hopeless? And the second one is I don't, the wording on that's a bit odd, isn't it? You know, it's a bit tricky to get your teeth around that. But anyway, the second one is during the past month, have you often been bothered by having little interest or pleasure in doing things? And we'll put the reference for that in our show notes. But I think they're two quite easy to remember screening questions that we can use quite easily with older adults in you know whilst they're they're in patients with us.
0: Having said that when asking about suicide I think it's important to understand that the risk assessment tools actually have a very limited validity and often people who die by suicide have been classified as low risk at their last assessment. A recent mixed methods systematic review stresses the importance of collaborative work with patients and their families. And there's there's work by Rao, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but if you wanted to look it up we'll pop it in the show notes and um, it's r-a-u-e and they make suggestions about how to ask about suicide risk in primary care which translates quite well into other medical settings and they talk about starting with asking about the person's thoughts about their future then followed by whether the person has ever felt if they would be better off dead and then moving to more specific questions about harm to self and how imminent this is methods and then access to weapons or medicines Um, and so like i said we'll we'll link to that in the show notes Um, And if somebody's reporting physical suffering, so things like gastrointestinal discomfort, dizziness, pain or things like poor sleep, it's also using this as a trigger or a reminder or a flag to to remind yourself to ask how they're coping. And this is backed up by studies from Lapierre and colleagues, uh, which have shown a link between somatic symptoms and a wish to die. So again, we'll we'll link that in the show notes um, because there's some in- interesting information and work. And I think
3: one of the things that you guys must see in the acute hospital as well or perhaps in, in the community is people who make offhanded comments like I've just had enough or, you know, they're getting up or they're struggling to get up and they say I've just had enough. And obviously you don't want to jump on that and kind of pin them down and then do some very long tick box risk assessment, which actually has no evidence anyway, but it's kind of picking up on that and then continuing the conversation and just being curious and interested and and kind of positioning yourself in a way where you're ready to hear actually how bad things have been and and making time for that. And I think there's different schools of thought in asking about suicide. Some people will suggest that you really need to just come out and say it. Um, Have you had thoughts about taking your own life or, you know, and I think that works probably better in a younger population who are more familiar with talking about suicide and kind of talking about their own mental health, and particularly with people who've been under mental health services for a while, I might be kind of tiptoeing around and they'll say, are you just asking me about suicide? You know, just just come out and ask it. But for older people, I think, who've maybe never spoken to a psychiatrist before and and aren't expecting the question, it's, it's better to kind of lead in with an acknowledgement of what they've told you before, that they're telling you that they're in pain. You also demonstrate to them that you've been listening. And you're making it possible for them to be honest about how bad they're feeling. So I think kind of acknowledging if they've said that that they're not sleeping and that things are really awful and saying, okay, it sounds like things have been terrible. I wonder if it's ever got to the point where you feel like you don't want to be alive anymore. So you're really giving them permission to say that. and, And I think you can never force someone to tell you how they're feeling if they don't want to say it but you can try and create an environment where it's possible for them to be open and and show them that you're ready to hear it and i think the other question that i think is useful in terms of kind of safety planning and identifying things that you might be able to help with is is kind of the magic one question so kind of asking like what would have to change for you to feel like life was worth living again that often gives you a lot of tips on what what does need to to be different
2: so there's a really interesting study by Rose McCabe, who used conversational analysis to look at how psychiatrists were asking about suicide risk. But although it was quite a small study with quite a small sample size, they found that 75% of questions were phrased negatively. So using phrases like no thoughts of harming yourself, which is a bit like asking people if they had no chest pain, isn't it? You're kind of leading that question already. So they found a similar thing in primary care again, framing to generate a negative response and also amalgamating questions together around suicide and self-harm so it's harder for someone to provide those answers and distinguish what they're talking about. They also found evidence of missed opportunity to empathise with a tendency to make moral judgments on the effect it would have on friends and family. So kind of leading on from what you were saying, Kate, it's really important that we don't start to pass those judgments, leave that kind of floor open for people to talk without trying to put words in their mouth, or prevent them from wanting to tell you about what's going on.
1: And and I think it's important just to acknowledge that it's these are not easy things to talk about. But they're even harder to talk about if you never do it. So if you start getting used to talking, you know, asking these questions, then you get more comfortable with doing that. And therefore, the person you're talking to often feels more at ease as much as that's possible you know more at ease to open up and, and to talk if you're looking comfortable if you're asking a question and you're looking really nervous and not certain about what you're asking then then you know you're less likely to get people opening up to you
2: so we're going to go back to that case again now and think a little bit more so talking to him he's been wishing he's not been alive for the last few months and the thoughts have become more intense recently He's had some morphine left over from when his wife died of cancer at home and has often thought about taking it, but wouldn't want to hurt his family. He wishes he'd died of the hip fracture and wakes up most mornings wishing that he had died in the night.
0: So if we go back to thinking about the FY1 who's hearing this, they may then be thinking at this point about what what they can do and what interventions are best and, and what is available. And so you can split the interventions up into three Different categories, the first being primary prevention. And this takes place at a population level. So these are universal measures that help everyone, and things like reducing inequalities, resourcing primary care, fostering social connectedness, and reducing isolation. Van Orden argues that addressing ageism is a form of universal prevention in itself, uh, which highlights the role of geriatricians as they're a group who are trained to optimise physical and cognitive function and focus on the well-being of their patients.
3: Selective prevention then targets groups who are at higher risk, for example, people who have physical health comorbidities, depression or isolation. And we know from some quite large studies in primary care that integrated approaches work really well. So things that look at depressive symptoms as well as comorbid physical health issues. There's been studies which are called Impact and Prospect um, looked at depression care managers. So they could be psychologists, nurses or social workers who coordinated the care for someone as As well as providing education about treatment options, they also offered interpersonal behavioural psychotherapy as as well as follow-up and monitoring of depressive symptoms and medication. Um, And both of these demonstrated a reduction in suicidal ideation after 12 and 24 months. But the active ingredients were thought to be the personalisation of treatment, therapeutic alliance and proactive follow-up.
1: So it sounds like there's a a real role for multidisciplinary teams here, the care managers, the psychologists, and, and the other people you've talked about. Are there roles for the wider MDT that we might work with in other situations?
3: Absolutely. I think that the MDT generally and people who work with older people, like we said, addresses kind of ageism and universal prevention, but is also helping to alleviate a lot of the kind of functional impairment, the pain, the isolation. So we know that physiotherapy has a role in supporting independence, quality of life, reducing pain, isolation and fear in older adults. Occupational therapy obviously helps with functional impairments, which might contribute to depression and suicidal thoughts. Making sure that people have access to the correct benefits and support can go some way to alleviate risk factors such as poverty.
1: And that's where where a social worker would would fit in really well with getting, uh, you know, your assessment under the CARE Act would cover a lot of those things. Absolutely.
3: And um, things like befriending and regular social contacts also has a role in reducing isolation and loneliness. And has been something that people who are researching suicide in older adults are thinking about as a future intervention to try and alleviate that thwarted belongingness aspect, and especially relevant during COVID.
2: So going back to those kind of primary prevention techniques we were talking about, Unfortunately, we we know that ageism exists and we know that it affects prescribing and referral patterns as well. The RC site published a report called Suffering in Silence, Age Inequality in Older People's Mental Health Care in 2018. And it looked at direct and indirect discrimination. Ageism in itself, just like racism and other forms of discrimination, affects health and is internalised quite often. So they found that discrimination in a large number of older adults was associated with increased symptoms of depression, worse self-rated health, functional limitations as well as chronic illness. And a study by Tadros and colleagues in 2013 found that only one in six older people with depression receive any treatment, whilst 50% of adults of working age do, which is a huge difference, isn't it?
1: That's George Tadros who did the RAID project, isn't it?
2: So although therapy has broadly got the same efficacy in younger and older adults, um, GPs are much more likely to refer working adults for these services Yet older adults, when they are referred, are far more likely to complete the therapy than their younger counterparts. 85% of older people with depression receive no support from the NHS and are a fifth as likely to have access to talking therapies, but six times more likely to be on medication. So we can see that way, the ways that we're approaching this, the things that we offer, we're, we're inherently providing different offers and supports as well, aren't we? But we do appreciate this is quite difficult. Um, so obviously these reports are just highlighting the patterns that have been found. It's no in no way a criticism of of what's happening. It, sometimes it can be that older adults might not be so willing to, to engage in in therapy if they've not had experiences with that in the past. Prescriptions may seem a more familiar approach for both the GP and patients. So this isn't really a criticism there. It's just highlighting some of those differences and patterns to challenge our thinking about how we could be doing this differently to make things more equitable. I think
3: it's also for us to think about how accessible our services are. So things like IACT, lots of kind of phone screening and things like that. So it might be difficult for older people who've got hearing impairments. Whereas when people are referred then to an older adult's community mental health team, they may be able to have home visits for psychology, which isn't always available in, in other primary care settings.
0: So a study in 2009 um, by Lyndon Kurtz kind of illustrates what we've just been talking about, and they asked 121 doctors to look at case studies of two identical patients with depression, with the only difference being age. So one was 39 and one was 81. The younger person was more likely to be diagnosed with depression, and uh, then prescribed psychotherapy, pharmacotherapy and referral for specialist treatment, while the older person was given a diagnosis of dementia or a physical illness and prescribed supportive counselling. So quite a, a, a difference there
1: and that backs up some of the things that we looked at when we did the age discrimination episode that it's there's a a whole potential cognitive bias there in the way that sometimes we make diagnoses and it's not a malicious thing but there is a you know we we all need to be aware of our our potential biases that is an example of that
0: so going on from what you said in terms of educating those involved in caring for older people to be more aware of these discrepancies which which occur it's often recommended though formal studies haven't occurred which directly measure the effect of uh, this education on suicide rates but even a brief educational intervention for clinicians working with older adults improved knowledge confidence attitudes and participants felt that it was likely to change their practice and that's actually from a recent paper from wand um, and their team and then um, some Information from an older study, which is a bit more dated now um, and not specifically focused on older people. But Gotland um, found that where GPs were given specific education about depressive disorders, this reduced the frequency of requirement for inpatient care by about 30% as also it reduced the frequency of suicide. However, after the programme ceased, the effect declined. So um, this suggests that the education needs to be repeated regularly. So some food for thought there.
1: I think the next thing. So we, so we've, we've thought through our gentleman. We've potentially made a diagnosis, and I think we need to think about what we can do at this point to try and make things safe for him. So, is there anything we can do at this point, Kate, that might help prevent anything further happening?
3: So I think it's, it's fantastic, really, that we've actually been able to start a conversation with, with Mr. Jones, and that this foundation doctor has been able to kind of get loads of useful information about what's been happening for mr jones and hopefully through that and and through that kind of empathic conversation we'll also be able to talk about the next steps which i think particularly will be thinking about a referral to the liaison team for further assessment and advice and i think that's um, a really really important thing just speaking from previous experience in liaison it's it's very helpful if you've been able to have a conversation about the referral before your friendly liaison psychiatrist turns up at your bedside. So I think gaining permission to to, uh, make that referral is, is helpful. If we think about those safety planning, um, Van Orden, again, is a researcher in suicide from the U.S., talks about, and her colleagues talk about targeting the five Ds. So depression, disability, meaning functional impairment, disease, physical illness and pain, disconnectedness, social isolation, and deadly, it's a bit of a clunky last thing, but we do love an acronym, deadly being access to lethal means. So if we frame our kind of safety planning around that, So part of that safety plan will be seeing the liaison team and and having further assessment and and treatment. That could be treatment of what sounds very much like depression, consideration of an antidepressant, maybe a referral to the community mental health team or some other option for talking therapy, and thinking about kind of how would he be monitored whilst treatment starts and what follow-up he might need, Um, particularly relevant with SSRIs. um, As we know, when we might be starting those, there can be sort of increased agitation sometimes people can get a sudden increase in suicidal thoughts which they need to be made aware of so that they can seek help if that does happen. Thinking about treating his insomnia so it might be trying something in the short term um, other than alcohol so that he doesn't need to drink to to get off to sleep. If we think about disability that's very much within the realm of the, the MDT on the ward so thinking about what's going to give him practical help at home whether that's a care package but also importantly I think understanding his thoughts about how he feels about that and what it's like to accept care what it's like to have people coming into your home what's it like to have a key safe and people having access to your property that that you know isn't just you all kind of important things to think about but very much within the realm of the the full mdt when it comes to his disease so thinking about is he still in pain is there pain that could be treated he sounds like he's become quite disconnected. Um, so are there ways to help him to feel more part of the community um, and, and make contact with people that maybe are out there and are actually quite interested in seeing how he's going, but he's kind of cut off contact or, or struggling with the iPad or helping him set that up. And then, of course, a really important one when someone's been discharged from the hospital is thinking about access to lethal means. So, particularly with older adults, there's often a load of quite high-risk medications that people will have, and sometimes because they're not able to get to see their doctors very much they might be prescribed in really large quantities which seems like it's saving people effort but actually can be an increased risk so thinking about can the pharmacy deliver in in weekly supplies and are there any other kind of risks at home that we need to be aware of and just another point in terms of safety planning really important to think about how would he feel or what would he do if he started to feel worse Always try and put the person in the situation of, you know, you feel a bit better now. We've got a plan in place, but things could change. And what will you do if that happens? So thinking with, through with someone and writing down what are the phone numbers they could use to call. Obviously, people can dial 999 and get an ambulance, but there are other options in terms of crisis lines or the Samaritans or Silver Line. that People can call if they just want to, to talk through how they're feeling um, or if they're feeling suicidal.
1: And I think we've, we've talked through a, a number of the risk factors and, and a strategy there. And I really like that five D's, D's acronym. Um, obviously, I, you know, of course I would, I love an acronym, but, yeah, I really do. but I think you, we, we've sort of, maybe one thing we've not made the point, or it's not come out as much, I don't think is that, you know, the, re- the last year, and the effects of COVID really have been a an unfortunate opportunity for a number of these risk factors to all coalesce and so i think as clinicians we need to be uh, especially vigilant over the coming weeks months and the next little while because actually you know the the impact of loneliness and the interaction between that and and depression is is more common and you know people may not have as well will not have had as much contact with their Uh, physical and mental health services and so some of the other risk factors will have been exacerbated as well and i think that's a sobering thing for us to finish this episode on (laughs) but i think it's you know i think it's it's um i think it's it's really important and, and something for us to you know um we can all take that away and pay special attention to our older people who have been Isolated and just ask those two key questions.
2: And I think it's something we're gonna see a lot more, isn't it? As people's um physical health has been not managed as well because it can't be. We're not seeing people, people being told to not go outside, you know, those things. We will see this, I think, a lot more over the next few years. Well, hopefully not, but what I mean by that is low mood and restriction. I think we've got a real opportunity to to therefore sort of be proactive with those things to try and optimize those to to try and prevent people from feeling worse or to try and improve their mood as we're seeing them and being quite proactive with our approach when we're seeing them for other things to talk about their mood see what we can do to get them engaged um to try and prevent them from from sort of flying under the radar with these things
3: I was just going to say as well, like one of the things that I've noticed with the people I've been calling is that there's really a desire not to bother anyone because there's this impression that whatever hospitals are doing and whatever GPs are doing and whatever, even in mental health services, whatever we're doing, that it's more important than whatever problem that older person has who's at home. And so really trying to kind of stress that that they are important and how they're feeling is important. And I think also acknowledging the, the bereavements that have happened obviously in such high rates, but also without the normal processes of grief. Um, so missing out on being able to go to funerals and, and uh, just people I've been speaking to who've lost more than 10 people in the last year and haven't been able to go to funerals. So it's, it's just setting up for a kind of complicated bereavement, unfortunately.
0: Do you think the um, media focus on COVID being a disease of older people, or something that older people are more at risk, or um, should be more concerned and anxious about? Do you think that kind of um, plays into ageism and internalizing sort of discrimination? Yeah,
3: absolutely. A, and I think that kind of narrative of older people as expendable is, you know, incredibly harmful. Um, and and you know, of course you couple that with the fact that people are sitting at home trying to say stay safe watching the tv and and seeing all of these headlines um it's yeah it's really quite harmful yeah. and
2: i'm sure that a lot of that as well is around you know a lot of people are feeling so when we're recording this now the lockdowns are hopefully going to start lifting in the next couple of months so depending on when you're listening to this you know you may be listening back to this going oh <laughs> you know, got that right and that wrong but, you know, everyone's feeling a bit anxious about what that means to go back into the world again. And then you've got this whole group of people who have been told that it's really dangerous for them to be outside, that they're going to die if they go outside. And then all of these things about not wanting to be a burden, not wanting to be in hospital if they don't need to and someone else needs it more. And that internalised stuff, I think, is going to be really important, and really sort of difficult to, to get past, I think. And, you know, will people want to come out and exercise again? And it, it, I think it's going to be really complex. And really complicated
1: one of the things we have done in the past is we have did an episode on depression with uh vicky Osman hicks who's an old age psychiatrist from the south coast um and that's episode 2.6 so i'll point you towards that one because towards the end of that episode we do talk a little bit about some of the things that can be done or some of the treatments uh, both pharmacological and non-pharmacological for uh, depression in older adults and obviously some of those will be relevant at the moment and some of those will become more relevant when lockdown lifts, like Joe says.
3: I think it's also worth acknowledging the effects that suicide, as well as having an effect on families and communities, can also have on clinicians and the the Royal College of Psychiatrists has recently developed with the Oxford University Centre for Suicide Research, um, a resource for psychiatrists, but I think there's some really helpful guidelines and advice in there for, for any clinicians. I think perhaps because as psychiatrists, we do think about suicide quite a lot and um, are involved in sort of attending coroner's courts and that, that sort of thing and serious incident reviews. We do think perhaps more about the effect that has on us and, and try and support each other as well as bereaved families and, and so on. But I think it can affect, you know, it affects GPs, it affects you know, geriatricians. Um, so it's important to think about that as
1: well so that kind of sums up our, our thoughts on this we'd really love for you to join the conversation about this and we'll be sending some provocations for a conversation through twitter and use the hashtag mdt club you can follow us on twitter
0: at mdt underscore podcast
1: or on the website
0: at www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.
1: and we're also on facebook.com forward slash mdt podcast
2: the mdt will reconvene in two weeks time Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for
0: delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a Hearing Aid Podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin MacLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk.